Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose. And what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. On this week's episode, my first guest is Ronnie Chatterjee, the Democratic candidate running for state treasurer in North Carolina. Later, we're joined by Jaspal Sandhu, a professor at UC Berkeley who's tackling some of health's most challenging problems through human-centered design and innovation. Stay tuned. If you haven't heard of Ronnie Chatterjee yet, you might want to listen closely. He's an Indian-American who is running for state treasurer in North Carolina this November. Ronnie's a professor of economics at Duke University and an expert in navigating through the intersection of business and public policy. He served as a senior economist on the White House Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration, and he's made major contributions in healthcare economic policy, education, and corporate social responsibility. The son of two Bengali immigrant parents who were both public educators, Ronnie has now turned his attention toward the race for treasurer in his home state of North Carolina, where he and his wife Neely are raising their three young kids. I caught up with him recently for a conversation, and I asked him about this strong background of education in his family and how it contributed to his own journey. You know, Ronnie, um, you uh, are someone who has uh, grown up as a South Asian American um, and your parents were uh, educators. You know, I'm curious about uh, how your upbringing and your values really resonate with uh, kind of your work now. Well, thank you for asking. I mean, so many of us, whether we want to or not, end up following in the family business. You know, I have so many friends who their parents might have been in the hotel or motel business, and despite their best efforts, they somehow get into that business as well. So many of our friends who are physicians, uh, sons and daughters of physicians, they end up following their parents' footsteps. And for me, it was really similar. You know, my dad's an economist, uh, very similar to me. He teaches at university, very similar to me. My mom uh, is an educator as well. And so those conversations around the dinner table for us had to do a lot with education and critical thinking. And because I had two older sisters as well who are also social scientists, social science was kind of the coin of the realm in, in my household. So we talked a lot about politics, economics, and the issues facing the United States, but also countries all around the world, particularly India, um, at our kitchen table. And those things shaped how I pursued my career uh, and even what I majored in in undergraduate. So I think it had a huge impact on me growing up. And, you know, in some ways, I think that that's, uh, you know, a real a boon uh, to have where you have that great background. And, you know, because our community is, is so diverse, I mean, aside from the education part, I mean, um, were there other uh, aspects of that, their sort of work ethic or the way that you sort of prepared or studied? And has how's that helped you so far, particularly in thinking about um, entering uh, the arena politics? You know, my folks were very insistent that it really wasn't about some innate intelligence or how smart you are. There was no, in, there was no notion of being good at math or bad at math. You did math. And I think that really instilled in me from a very young age that everything is about hard work. And so 
I think that was a really important realization. I never thought that I was going to step into any arena, whether it was the classroom, workplace, um, research and teaching at Duke, and be able to just dominate based on what was in my brain. I always thought it's going to require a lot of work. And the same thing in politics. You know, I obviously don't have a, a traditional political background. You know, my last name has like 15 letters. I'm running statewide in North Carolina for my first race. But we've been successful so far because I think we've, we've really put in the work. And that is something my parents definitely instilled in me. And the second piece, I think, is the importance of family as at the core, which I know so many of us grew up in the same way. You see your parents, even though they don't say it out loud, prioritizing family in every decision they make. And I think when you see that, it just becomes part of your second nature. And my wife and I really grew up in many ways very similarly, even though we come from different backgrounds geographically and our parents are from different parts of India. That piece about the importance of family is something that we don't even have to say out loud, but we just both gravitate towards. And I attribute that to my folks and, and her upbringing as well. And, and that's actually, you know, a, a great message in general. Have you found that the importance of family in that backdrop has transcended um, in just about every community that, that you've really ex- explored and, and tried to, um, you know, connect with in North Carolina? Oh, for sure. And you just have to get to know people well enough to understand those things. If you meet somebody, you know, disembodied from their community or their family, you might not pick up on those things right away. But when you meet folks in their community, when you get to know families, you see that these things are existent in every culture and every type of group. And sometimes it manifests in different ways. It also, you know, depends on how much a community you have around you. You know, a lot of our folks uh, who came from India, they moved to places where there wasn't a lot of other Indian Americans around. And so they had to build different kinds of social networks. Both my wife and I grew up in pretty small towns. Other people moved to places like the Bay Area or New York City where there were a lot more people and you could build different kinds of communities, sometimes not just among other Indian Americans or South Asians, but among specific sort of language groups like Drapi or Telugu. So it depends kind of where you are and how those networks form. And that's true, not just for Indian Americans, but um, for Americans of all, of all kinds. Let me ask you, because you and your wife are, are raising uh, a family in North Carolina, which has such an amazingly rich, um, yet very complex um, American history. And, you know, I, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit now on, you know, what's it like to, to raise a family given this backdrop and um, how, uh, important and high stakes of a time it is right now um, to both celebrate our diversity, but also think about um, different movements that are out there like Black Lives Matter. Well, I'll start at the beginning. You know, my dad came to this country in 1961, the day that John F. Kennedy was inaugurated. My dad got off a boat that day in Wilmington, North Carolina. And, you know, it's interesting, the American dream story that a lot of us tell, you know, is similar for my dad, $7 in his pocket, you know, didn't know a single person, was on his way to study here in America. And, you know, 50 years later, more than 50 years later, he's laid the foundation for a fantastic life for me and my sisters. But after the killing of George Floyd and reflecting on different parts of my identity, I've started to think about different angles to that story. You know, my dad also told me another piece of that story, which never really resonated until more recently. When he got off the boat in Wilmington, uh, he was going to go use the restroom. For the first time in his life, he saw the restroom segregated by color, you know, mm. white and black. And, you know, being a guy from India, 20 years old, he didn't really know which bathroom he was supposed to go into. He hadn't identified as, as one of those categories. And so he asked the woman behind the counter, you know, which bathroom he should go to. And I think a lot about the answer to the question that she gave him and how it impacts the way people perceive you. You know, so many of our stories are precipitated on the idea that we came here and did it all on our own without thinking about the other aspect, which is how people treat us and how they see us. 
that woman that day in North Carolina told my dad to go to the whites bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about that in terms of the success that so many of us have had in this country and uh, the opportunities we've been able to avail to ourselves. And it is based, yes, on the hard work that we learn around the kitchen table, but it's also based on kind of how society views us and the categories we fit into. And no American dream story that I tell or any other immigrant tells would be complete without also recognizing that there were people in Wilmington that day who'd been in this country for generations who never had the chance to do the things that my family has had in one generation. And so I think the legacy of our story is trying to make sure that we expand opportunity, not just to people who are new arrivals, but to the people who have been here for a long time. And to me, this moment we're living in, um, after the killing of George Floyd and all the discussions around the country, that's how it's led me to reflect on my own identity. For my kids, you know, I always thought of it that, you know, growing up here to an American-born dad, an American-born mom, American-born mom, they feel 200% American. You know, I felt 100% American. My parents spoke an accent. They were new to the country. They were navigating the system. But I always felt 100% American. But, of course, when you have parents from another country, even after they've long become U.S. citizens and all that, you're, you always see that pull between the old and the new. My kids, I thought, well, they shouldn't really have any of that, right? Their, their parents are as all America as can be. But so much changed uh, in this country during the time that we've had kids. And a lot of it, you know, in the last four years, but even before that, where you hear things um, and you hear even from leadership, things that I never thought I'd hear. And the validation of kinds of ideas that I think I thought we had really moved on beyond. I mean, if you think about, uh, there was a rally in Greenville, North Carolina, where some of the crowd was chanting, send them back, send them back, send them back. I never thought I'd hear anything like that. And I never thought my kids would hear anything like that. And so while I think they will end up being 200% American, I also think they're going to grow up um, conscious of their identity in a much different way than I imagined. But it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to run for office, because I feel like putting a different narrative out there of what the immigrant and son and daughter of immigrant story is, showing people the contributions that we've made to this country and we can make when we work together, that's going to also create an environment for my kids um, that lives up to the potential that I once hoped for. Do you feel like because they have such a, you know, the narrative of, of that story you just mentioned and this backdrop, you know, does that diversity contribute to even sort of a greater patriotism um, or an equivalent patriotism? Um, you know, I, I wonder if, if that contribution um, to their lives, um, does diversity actually make us more patriotic in a way? I think it does. I've always been a person throughout all these ups and downs in politics, all the discussions about race, race and ethnicity, immigration, who's really believed that America is a unique country and the American dream is possible. I've, I've never, just never abandoned that core value. And I'm a big Simpsons fan. So there's a fantastic episode uh, where they go to Washington, Lisa does, and there's a kid who's an immigrant. And he says, where but in the United States or possibly Canada, could this story even be possible? And what I love about that is, you know, I do feel like my parents' experience here couldn't have happened in very many places, maybe just one. Yeah. And I think that similarly, my kids, as, as second-generation Americans, however you want to term them, their experience here is also very unique. And we're really grateful for the opportunities that America has provided them. But being grateful isn't enough. You've got to contribute to expanding those opportunities. You've got to contribute to making sure that we live up to our ideals. And so I think my kids have or should have, hopefully, a responsibility to contribute back into the nation with their diverse point of view, but also just as proud Americans. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about as I try to explain to them what's at stake in this election, as I try to explain to them why I'm running for office. And I do think that our diversity can be a strength, but we all need to be at the table uh, contributing for that to be true. And I think my kids, as much as anybody else's kids, got to be part of that. You know, um, so... 
in, in that same vein, right, civic engagement is something that <clears throat> we we really all should be attentive to, whether it's by the basic exercise of voting or, you know, running for office or becoming, you know, engaged um, at the local level or the, you know, at any level for that matter. And you once said that, um, you know, people like me usually don't run for office. <laughs> and, um, you know, in, in that same light, um, what prompted you to sort of take the take this on and, and in some ways, you know, become, put yourself, uh, you know, in that position of saying, hey, well, you know, now I, I am someone who's running for office. Well, I think for me, I had always been with my academic training as an economist and professor, very comfortable writing memos, giving advice, helping other people win races and advise them when they did. You know, I was the man behind the man, the man behind the woman. The man behind the math. Yeah, yeah, the man behind the math, exactly. And, you know, when I saw President Obama speak in 2004, though, at the Democratic Convention, he said that a skinny kid with a funny name could do anything in America. And I swear, I, mean, I thought he was talking about me, you know, and I thought a lot of us did in our community. And I thought, you know what, I maybe am limiting my potential unnecessarily and thinking of things I could do. You know, I didn't think someone like me in my background could necessarily be in elected office. I haven't seen too many people like that. We had some great folks elected at the state level and beginning to see folks elected to Congress, but it wasn't in the places I was from. And I, I didn't necessarily think that that was possible, but seeing President Obama up there and seeing how he's accepted by a wide swath of Americans, that was really inspiring to me. And so that's why I decided to work on his campaign. Um, when he hired me at the White House to join the Council of Economic Advisors as a senior economist, I got the front row seat into how policy is made uh, and how politics is done as well. And so that really changed my view of what was possible and pushed me to enter public service in a way I hadn't thought before. Um, and you know, my life's never been the same since. We're going to take a quick short break. And when we come back, we'll have more with uh, Ronnie Chatterjee. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. We're back with uh, Ronnie Chatterjee and um, so grateful that he's joining us. Um, you, you mentioned, of course, uh, you know, the impact that you of your previous experiences um, in uh, policy and, and politics with President Obama. Um, I was curious that, you know, for, you know, minority communities in, in general, um, you know, the South Asian community is diverse in its um, generational um, feel. It's diverse um, in, it, in its economies. You know, are there, are there pieces of advice that, you know, as, you know, given your economic background, um, how, how people should really, you know, understand and prioritize what should be important um, in, in, our, in our lives these days? Well, I mean, I think you kicked it off in the right way, which is saying we are an incredibly diverse community. And so, you know, I obviously have a lot of support from the Indian American community in North Carolina. And in that sport, I meet folks from all kinds of different walks of life. And you're right. Some folks are professionals uh, working in healthcare. Others have blue collar jobs. They're working just as hard, but don't get the same kind of income that folks who have professional degrees get. And so that's a big divide in our community and a lot of other ones. And the concerns of those different groups um, really loom large. Some people are worried about the impact of COVID on their ability to make ends meet. And other people can work at home and use a webcam and get a lot of their work they used to do done and sometimes more efficiently with more time with their family. That's a big divide in terms of how they might think about the balance between public health and reopening our economy. And I'm cognizant of that. We have religious diversity in our community, in the South Asian community and the Indian American community. And so when you think about folks' attitudes towards foreign policy or the U.S.-India relationship, you have different points of view depending on where you're from in India and your background, ethnic or religious. 
um, that you pick up. Now, in a race like mine, what's great is people are really focused on North Carolina. Um, folks who are in healthcare may have a different view of what changes uh, a new president might bring. Uh, folks in finance might have a different view. How much you weigh the impact of taxation in terms of how you vote is also a big difference across different groups. So I can't really presume to give advice to South Asians or Indian Americans on what their priorities should be or what my priorities are. I think a lot about the world I want to build for my kids. I think a lot about this election being a referendum on that. For me, the things that I think are going to affect my kids more than anything is what kind of economy we have. Is it a dramatically unequal economy where just a few people have a chance because of the zip code that they live in, the school they go to, or is it one where opportunities more widely shared? Are we going to build um, a society where we take into account the impact of climate change on everything we do and its threat to the way we live? Or are we going to kick the can down the road and leave it for somebody else? Um, are we going to make a healthcare system that can provide affordable and accessible healthcare to every American or not? Those are the kinds of things that really animate me and how I think about the election. Um, and to me, at the end of the day, it chalks up to what my values are. But we have a lot of diversity in our community, and I think we'll probably vote for lots of different you know, candidates up and down the ballot. Um, I think for me, in North Carolina, a lot of folks are glad to see someone who looks like them on the ballot. And so regardless of their political ideology, they feel like they can relate and there's representation there. And so that's been a fantastic boon for the campaign, given that we have 140,000 uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders in North Carolina, a really big swing, swing demographic in an election like this. Yeah, and, and that's actually really interesting that you say that. So, um, and I'm only, I'm curious about this uh, being a novice economist more than anything else, but if for someone who's really um, spent uh, time and, uh, you know, use a lot of academic rigor to um, investigate um, how to, in fact, be a, a state treasurer, um, you, you clearly have the background for this. It is, you know, being a good treasurer, do you have to be agnostic to, um, you know, background and values in, the, in, in order to preserve the principles of uh, a stable and thriving economy? That's a great question. So uh, the place where it comes up the most is how you invest the pension fund. So we have a large public pension fund, one of the top 10 in the United States. As you know, pension funds provide, uh, in North Carolina and other states, defined benefit for people who work for the state. People like my folks who are state employees. At the end of their career, they'll get a defined benefit pension check. And that's based on the value of the contributions they made into the pension fund, the value of the contributions their employer made, in this case, the state government, and the returns that we get on the money we've invested over those years. And so in North Carolina, the state treasurer is responsible for investing that money. And unlike California or many other states where there's a board, North Carolina has a sole trustee model where it's just the person, in this case me, uh, who would be investing that money. So it's a tremendous responsibility from a fiduciary point of view and a financial point of view to allocate that money across different asset classes, stocks, bonds, real estate, venture capital, and think about the fees you pay to those managers who will manage your money. This issue about the role of social issues on those investments has loomed large for a long time. Yeah. But you've seen an emerging consensus that there isn't just this divide between economic and social issues. Social issues are affecting the economy and our investments. Just two days ago, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, one of our number one financial regulators, a Trump administration appointed group, created a subcommittee that released a report that concluded that climate change is a systemic risk to our financial system. And if you're running a pension fund, you ought to think about how climate change can affect the value of your investments and the managers you invest with. If you're not doing that, in my view, you're not taking the fiduciary responsibility because you're not thinking about the impact of having stranded assets or companies that are being penalized and fined by the government on the value of your holdings. 
I don't want my folks' money to be lost because we're ignoring the realities of climate change. The military isn't doing that. They're accounting for that in their exercises. Our churches are thinking about that when they think about their attitude towards the earth and creation care and these issues. Well, pension funds ought to think about it too. Otherwise, we're not being wise investors. And so in my uh, estimation, the social issue, financial issue divide, particularly as it relates to environmental issues, is really disintegrating. And you're seeing much more focus of traditional investors on climate and other issues. And, uh, and there's a lot more work to be done in thinking about how diversity and inclusion and workers' rights and other issues also affect the values of our investments. But climate change is certainly the one that's broken through, I think, in a big way. I almost feel like I need to have a fireside chat with you just to you know, think about my own personal finances. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I mean, even in our own portfolios, there's tremendous demand to think about how it might affect you. And, you know, think about um, folks who live uh, in areas that are really vulnerable to environmental disasters. I mean, you've seen in California where you're at, how this plays out, how will that affect the property values and the insurance premiums in places that are vulnerable? And that will in turn have a knock-on effect on our local government finances because we raise a lot of money from property taxes, which will affect our schools and other kinds of issues. Public finance officials, like a treasurer, need to be taking that into account. And if we don't, I think we're not being good stewards of people's money. And, and you know, in that same light, then, you know, you mentioned vulnerable communities and um, vulnerable populations. I, I think that um, there's, there's such a tremendous um, ethnic, racial, uh, socioeconomic diversity in, you know, just about every community in the States. How is that sort of inclusion or that diversity um, important to a stable economy or a stable, um, you know, state-based uh, or even national-based uh, economy? I think about it as we need everyone off the bench contributing to our economic growth. You know, one of the great advantages of the United States is our large and diverse population, and particularly the younger population that's going to be very productive for a long time if they have the skills, training, opportunity to do so. So if you have a bunch of people on the sidelines who are not being given an opportunity to live up to their fullest potential, that's a wasted resource. And that is, means we're not living up to our potential as an economy or a society. You think about countries around the world who discriminate against women in the workforce and give them opportunities to build our human capital. This isn't just a question about morals, although it is. It's a question about economic vitality. Those countries are not going to be successful when they're leaving 50% of their valuable human capital on the sidelines. Mm. And so similarly, in North Carolina or around the country, we have to find ways to expand opportunity to people, not just because it's the right thing to do, because they'll make our economy stronger. The more people who are starting businesses, the more people who are hiring folks, the more people who are able to find productive uses of their talent, the more we're going to grow and the bigger pie we're going to be able to have for the entire country. So I think about that as like an economic necessity, which again, I mean, makes it really easy to talk about. I don't get in a lot of arguments with people about, you know, the politics of, of these issues. I talk about the economics and it's pretty hard to argue that a more diverse and inclusive society isn't going to be a more prosperous one. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing on RuckusAvenueRadio.com. My guest today is Ronnie Chatterjee, and after a quick break, we'll come back and talk a bit more about being a South Asian American candidate in the race for treasurer of North Carolina. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. So we're back with uh, Ronnie Chatterjee. Um, Ronnie, you won a close primary uh, versus another um, South Asian candidate, and you know, what did that feel like, uh, in fact, um, being in a race with another um, candidate who's representing um, our South Asian community? And um, did you learn any lessons from that? Yeah, I did. I think it was a historic moment, both to win the primary, you know, with 410,000 votes, where the first Asian American person to ever be nominated to a statewide office uh, by Democrats here. And if I win in November, I'll be the first Asian American and only the second person of color 
ever elected to a statewide office in North Carolina history. So it's a, it's a big deal. Um, running in the primary against two great opponents, Matt Leatherman and then a fellow Indian American, Dimple Ajmera, was a really interesting experience. But I, what I learned from this is, you know, competition makes you a better candidate. So both Matt and Dimple, I think, going around the state with them, competing with them made me better, made me hone my skills and, and make sure that I understood the issues in a deeper way and was connecting with people when you have two great competitors who are going to have, you know, long futures in North Carolina politics. Um, you know, with two Indian Americans in the race, um, you know, I just think at the end of the day, it just shows you how far we've come as a community. You know, um, the idea that you have two people running for a statewide office and a competitive primary from your same community is just a testament to how far uh, folks have come and how uh, we're being accepted and assimilated into the national fabric. So I think looking back at it, I think that was, a, that was a, just a positive frame of how to think through it. And I think Dibble will probably say the same thing as she continues to serve uh, in Charlotte. And um, I think the primary also taught me a lot about the importance of getting to know people and getting out and meeting people face to face, which of course COVID-19 has changed that quite a bit. Um, but our ability to get around the state and meet people and win endorsements from all, you know, most of the major groups across North Carolina, that was a big reason why we won. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for, for you, have there been any um, surprises or, or challenges that you found as, you know, being um, someone who's poised to make history as an Indian American um, in that way? Um, were there any major challenges that you faced? Um, because I think that um, as people uh, think about becoming more and more civically engaged, um, there's always this tendency to think about what the risks are there. And, and were there, um, you know, any particular barriers or roadblocks that you faced at all? I think that no one's going to believe in you unless you don't believe in yourself first. And so if you can't believe that you can do it, you really can't ask other people to invest. And so the first thing you need to do, if you're thinking about running for office or doing something that hasn't been done before or achieving some sort of milestones, you have to believe you can do it. Nobody in my experience is going to come tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I think you can do something that hasn't been done before. I think you're the person we've been waiting for. I, I just don't see that. You know, maybe, maybe in a revisionist tall tales, we tell our stories that way. But no, you got to believe you can do it. And so before anyone, you know, told me I could do this, I decided I could do it. And then when I went out there and it was up to me to persuade people that someone who, with my background, who wasn't a typical candidate, who's not straight from central casting the way the political consultants look and, at um, and, and we won people over one by one. And I think, you know, if we're successful on November 3rd, it'll just be another way to show people that it can be done. And I think this is where role models really matter. I hope that my victory, if I can do it in November, will be an inspiration to other people to believe they can do it. But, but nothing will ever happen unless you believe you can do it yourself. In terms of challenges, I just think doing something and getting elected in a state that hasn't elected someone like me before, people look at it and say, well, is this a long shot or not? But I'd show them the metrics. I'd show them the demographics changes in North Carolina. I'd show them the fundraising we had. I showed them the endorsements. We were endorsed by President Obama, you know, things like this. And I would show them my knowledge of the issues and what I could do on those and how I build those coalitions. And so chipping away at that skepticism with just hard work, starting at the very beginning of our discussion, things we learned around the kitchen table, that's what I found have been really successful so far. And, and reaching out to a wide diversity of groups with humility and, uh, and a willingness to listen as much as you talk. That's probably another surprise I'd say. I expected politics to be a lot of talking, a lot of speech giving. It's actually a lot of listening. <laughs> Campaigning, as um, one of the presidential candidates said, is a two-way street. Uh, it's listening and talking. And I think there's a lot more listening than I would have imagined when I saw politics on the West Wing or House of Cards. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that... Um that clearly resonates with a lot of people is, um, you know, someone who's listening to them, someone who's representing them, someone who's really um, curating their interests. And, you know, in medicine, uh, there's a, a real principle of trust, 
where you go and see your healthcare provider. And, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, educating um, other, other physicians. And one of the key principles of that is to, in fact, develop this sense of entrustment. Is this person entrustable to, you know, take on this task? And, you know, I really wanted to ask you, um, uh, you know, and, and how would you maybe frame this? Um, what makes you entrustable to be the uh, treasurer for the state of, of North Carolina? It's a great question, because at the end of the day, if you can't be trusted at the state and local level, how can you do all these other things at the national level? I often find people have it backwards, you know, trying to start from the top and think that people are going to trust them when you haven't fixed potholes. How can you fix healthcare if you can't have fixed potholes yet? So I think that's really important. For me, I think the value proposition for someone like me to voters is that I have the expertise and the skills to get the job done. You know, the treasurer's job is such a technical job. And we make fun of it in our, uh, in our campaign commercials um, and interviews where we say, you know, no one knows what the treasurer does. But people know it's, it's hard technical stuff has something to do with money. And the fact that I'm an economist, the fact that I got a PhD, the fact that I've worked in fi with financial services and I've worked in government, that gives people the first, the notion that, okay, he can do the job. The second piece is, you know, I'm not in politics. I'm not a politician. I clearly have a very different background. I mean, most people, if they watch this interview, they'll say, okay, this guy doesn't look like a politician or seem like a politician. And, you know, that can be good or bad. But I think when people are looking at this position, it isn't one where you really need a politician. You know, I'm not running to be a legislator and cutting back room deals or, you know, trying to inspire people with my Twitter account. I'm not running for, you know, judge. I mean, I'm running for something that you need economics and finance to do. And it's a, a technocratic job where you have to build bridges. And I think having a non-politician in that role is another part of why people will trust me in this. And at least that's why I'm finding on the trail, the expertise and not being from politics. Well, Ronnie, um, I think the expertise and the talent is is right here in front of us. So I, I really appreciate you being on with us. Um, it, it's been a terrific uh, um, experience. Really, the pleasure has been ours to, to try and get to know you a little bit better. And we wish you nothing but the best of success uh, going forward. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And for those who want to follow the campaign, we're at Ronnie Chatterjee on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at R-O-N-N-I-E-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-I. Thanks so much, everyone. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose in the South Asian diaspora. And what they're basically saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific on RuckusAvenueRadio.com. Bold and inspiring design are almost mandatory when trying to solve some of our society's deepest problems. So if you're looking to be better prepared, then just share a few moments with my next guest, Jaspal Sandhu. Jaspal is a professor at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, where his work leads him to the intersection of digital health, human-centered design, and health equity. He's also the co-founder of the Gobi Group, a social innovation consultancy where he leads efforts to drive innovation for the health of communities around the world. Whether it's looking into optimizing decision-making in national immunization systems, creating new models for domestic violence prevention in California, or improving access to HIV testing and treatment for key populations globally, design and innovation are at the heart of his work. We started out by talking about whether some level of discomfort was needed to get the innovation process started. Jaspal, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited and uh, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but uh, 
uncomfortable. I'm, I'm used to being in your seat. So, you know, uh, what's funny is, does that discomfort then is, is that the secret behind, um, you know, innovation and, uh, the next creative new idea? Is there, is there a, uh, importance to having some sort of discomfort in that zone? Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, innovation is all about listening and asking the right questions and, um, yeah, I totally feel like this is this is role reversal today. So, so thanks for making me feel uncomfortable. Bye. No, no worries. That that's uh, you know I, I appreciate being in I guess the opposite role to to make you feel uncomfortable in some ways. But you know, part of the you know interest and in, and curiosity that I had in even thinking about this <clears throat> from from my vantage point as a South Asian, I was trying to think about things that are uniquely South Asian or. Um, stereotypically in some ways South Asian. And I thought of one in particular that I wanted to ask you about that, you know, we went through a experience where we had to plan uh, an event last summer. And from a design standpoint, I think I know this has probably been the case of my life, but, you know, definitely it rings true for a lot of us, but it certainly rings true for me, this notion of sort of Indian standard time. And the idea that uh, when I say we're starting at five o'clock, I really mean that we're starting at 5.30 or worse um, in, in that way. I wanted to find out, I mean, that might be an extreme example, but is, is there a design for time and efficiency? And does it have to come with the empathy of knowing culture and, you know, or the expense of a cultural norm um, or expectation? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I think you hit on uh, on a really key point, and that is that that it is about culture. And so, you know, we're South Asians, but we're South Asians here in America, yeah. and we, um, you know, we're very much at the interface of a lot of cultures. And, and when I say culture, I use that word pretty broadly. You know, I my culture is yes, I'm uh, Punjabi. I'm American. I'm Punjabi American, but I also, you know. I trained as an engineer, being an engineer is part of my culture, being a designer is part of my culture. Um, or those are cultures that I belong to. And, uh, and if we can hit on Indian standard time for a moment, it, it feels like something that um, I can say this with <laughs> even within my own household, you know, there's friction, people interpret it really differently, even if um, they've, they've come from the same, same heritage. There's a lot of folks who are uh, in our South Asian community here who are quite punctual. Five o'clock does mean five o'clock. And a lot right. of the rest of us like, you get a sense of which group I belong to. You know, five means 5.30 or six. And my cousin, for him, it means seven or eight or, or tomorrow. Right. Uh, I hope that too much of the tomorrow part. Uh, you know, we've all got one or two of those folks in our family who are very dear to us who... <laughs> You <laughs> kind of interpret it that way, but it's culture is really at the root of what we do in, in design. It's understanding culture and then designing for culture. And uh, I'm trying to think if I have a good example to talk about or. Well, I mean, even the nuance and ritual aspect of culture, whether that be the culture of engineering, the culture of academics, the culture of being Indian or South Asian, is that critical in, in really thinking about the design process, meaning that you, you you must take that into account when you're trying to um, design a new process or a new system or, or innovate. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a word um, that um, 
kind of a controversial word in, in design these days, empathy. Um, I, I think I'm in the empathy camp. That's how do you, how do you actually understand somebody else from their, their perspective? Um, we, uh, we at Gobi uh, did some work in uh, healthcare, in the healthcare safety net in New Jersey about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, working with, uh, with a couple of partners, but the, the core partner there on the ground is an organization called uh, Complete Care. They're a healthcare organization that spans three counties. This is, it's, um, if you're not from this, this might sound a little strange, but it's, uh, it's just outside of Philadelphia, but it's very rural at the same time. Sure. And, you know, they're trying to understand how to improve um, their mammography program. So they're doing 20,000 mammograms every year and they're losing a lot of people to follow up. Like they're doing these mammograms and then, you know, there's a certain subset that they need to contact to come back in or, or to have at least a conversation with their provider. Uh, and there's having a real tough time getting to them. And part of that has to do with, um, uh, who lives there. I mean, it's a lot of, uh, migrant seasonal farm workers, uh, primarily from Mexico. And, and what we did in partnership with Complete Care was really uh, institute process where they could better empathize with those patients. And that doesn't mean that they didn't care before. Obviously, they cared about those patients deeply. And that's why, why um, a lot of those people work in that organization. It's a lot, why a lot of people yeah. work in care, as you know. But it was really a way for um, those providers, those physicians, those nurses, uh, and other frontline staff to actually sit down with some of these women and really see it from their perspective and really understand what happened, not just when they showed up to the clinic, but what was happening at all these other points of the process. And, you know, yes, understanding their culture, but I, I would say more than understanding their culture as, um, you know, Mexican immigrant farm workers, but really understanding like that whole community uh, and that whole experience as, you know, women in their 40s and 50s were coming in for this this test and, and what happened afterwards. And it, it was pretty phenomenal that there were some real breakthroughs in understanding that weren't just great stories to tell, but actually resulted in a different way of doing things that had real impact. The idea of designing for you versus designing with you um, or at you probably, you know, factors in. And when you think about that, um, particularly as someone with an Indian or a South Asian background, as a designer or an innovator, is, is there any meaning to being an Indian designer or an innovator? Or, you know, does that resonate particularly with your thought process when you're thinking about design and innovation? These are good questions, questions I haven't had enough time to really <laughs> think about and pause, pause in my life to, to reflect on. You know, part of it, for me is being um being an immigrant so not necessarily the indian part of it um but just being being american but also not always having been from here and having a culture that has roots somewhere else you know i was born in england Mm -hmm. my family moved there my parents moved there um from punjab in the in the 70s 60s and 70s uh, and I came here to the U.S. when I was really young, but I was still an immigrant. I grew up mostly in Arizona, and um, there are Indians in Arizona, and there have been yes. for a while. But, um, but it's different than growing up 
you know, in a place like the Bay Area or Toronto right. or New Jersey. Um, and so you're always, you're sort of always at this boundary. There's this interface between your, your roots uh, and the place where you are. And I think that it lends itself well to understanding culture, to understanding the experiences of others. Because, you know, what we do uh, in not just at Gobi, but what we do in, in design is we're trying to understand other people's culture. I mean, if you, you ever watch uh, Shark Tank? Yeah. So when you watch Shark Tank, there's a, a pattern uh, that repeats itself over and over that it's um, these founders are quite often solving their own problem. They've got their own, something didn't work for them, with them and their kids or with it, you know, the one we saw the other night was uh, some sort of separator for kids in the back of a car. If you have three kids or maybe two kids, you put this thing over the kids. And oh, wow. I'm not going to comment on my, my <laughs> of the product it might be a product for somebody they got sure. it involved but that was a mom solving her own problem yeah uh, and that's great and that's really the story of a lot of innovation is you know somebody had somebody ran into an issue and they just said enough is enough i've got to come up with a different way of doing this that's how the pull tab was invented on the top of beer wow. and cans. yeah um and i mean you know in that way solving for problems that are critical solving for problems that are the sort of, you know, itch on your side or that, that you're really sort of, you know, gravitating um, towards. Are, are there any pieces of that, given that backdrop that you described of, of how you grew up and, and being an Indian from Arizona or even your, your experience so far, when did that turn into perhaps the intersection of design and health for you? Mm. So I think for me, uh, my awakening uh, happened when I went to India. <laughs> sounds, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> sounds like a, a common story, even for, for non-Indians. Sure. So I, I trained as a mechanical engineer um, in my undergrad and, and grad school. And, uh, you know, I worked in product design. I worked in mechanical design. I worked in manufacturing systems. Um, my last job before doing more grad school was uh, for Nokia's research group, doing product development for them and in their Boston office. And <clears throat> I came out here to California. Uh, so maybe that was like the first part of my journey. I, I lived in Boston for a while. I moved to, to California um, to go to Berkeley for, uh, for my PhD and uh, ended up in South India in Tamil Nadu with uh, two lifelong friends now. One of them is the co-founder of, uh, of my company, uh, Amin Bhandari and uh, Mahad Ibrahim. Uh, and we were there to do, uh, as graduate students, a case study of an organization called uh, Oralab, which is a nonprofit uh, medical device manufacturer. That's a pretty, that's rare air. There's not a lot of those. Yeah. Um, and they were affiliated with uh, the Arvind Eye Care System, which is, you know, the biggest, I think still the biggest um, eye care ophthalmology system in India. Um, I should also say that it was like going to a different country um, because, you know, my family's from Punjab and everything was different there and and in a good and beautiful way. Mm -hmm. But it felt like, wow, this is a, this is a really 
this is a different experience down to, you know, down to everything, down to, down to desserts, down to eating rice with my hands, which I'd never yeah. done before. Um, when we were there, you know, I'd already had some experience in, in human-centered design with, uh, with my time at Nokia, working in product development. And we were kind of doing similar stuff there with, with Orlab and Arvind, um, really trying to understand how they did innovation. And there wasn't really anything that we contributed to those organizations. It was, um, uh, they were very generous in sharing. Um, it's almost like we were there as, as journalists more than, than researchers. We, we took and we learned. And what I saw was uh, an organization that had effectively been doing human-centered design since the late 70s and had been able to just conquer challenge after challenge after challenge. Um, but when I looked around the rest of global health, it seemed like there were really big, let's say big opportunities to apply human-centered design to global health. And for me, that was like mm-hmm. a, uh, a slow awakening. But over the next couple of years, I, I completely shifted my focus. And now for the last 15 years, all I've been doing is this, this work in design for, for public health and globally. And, you know, we're working on HIV now and, and domestically in, in domestic violence. Um, my guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Jaspal Sandhu. After a quick break, we're going to talk a little bit more about his experiences and how some of the intersections work with technology. So stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Jaspal Sandhu. You have actually spent a fair amount of time abroad and specifically as a Fulbright Fellow um, in rural Mongolia, what exactly did you learn there? And if you can share that with um, listeners, that would be terrific because, um, you know, certainly rural Mongolia has a lot to offer and it'd be important for, for folks to, to learn what your experience was about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I lived, uh, lived in Mongolia for, uh, for about two years. I lived in the city in Ulaanbaatar, but spent uh, more than half of my time in, in the countryside uh, doing work with the Ministry of Health there. I was uh, there doing my PhD research, but it was what I would call applied research. So it was work with that national ministry, but also with these provincial health departments to um, improve the work practice of community health nurses. So there's um, maybe some setup for Mongolia because I I have realized over the years that people don't know a whole lot about it. Yeah. Uh, And some of this may sound silly to say, but it's an independent country. Mm -hmm. It's between Russia and China. Those are its only two borders, which makes for some really fascinating geopolitics um right. the way Mongolia interfaces with actually the united states china and russia mm-hmm. uh it's a very very sparsely populated country it's mm-hmm. the i think the most maybe chad chad and mongolia are the most sparsely populated countries in the world about half half the people live in the capital city and the rest are stretched out over country that's the size of about a third of the continental u.s um wow talking they're probably up around 3 million people now. Right. Um, and so for that rural, you know, half a million people, maybe six, 700,000 people at that time, um, 
their first interface with the health system are these community health nurses that they call Baginench, who live in the community, um, travel by, uh, I'll say by any means necessary, often by motorcycle, but you know, yeah. even, even in 2008, there were um, Baginench who were traveling by, um, by horse or by camel, depending on the, the time of year and what was available. Um, and people might live 10, 20 miles away from that person. And that person is their first entry point into the health system. Then you've got to go, in some cases, uh, I think the furthest example I had was uh, to get to a primary health care center, something like 100, 120 kilometers, because you had to go around a mountain range yeah. to get there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole couple of years of lessons. I think for me, one of the things that stood out most uh, was how much innovation happens mm-hmm. at local levels. People are always solving their own problems. So, you know, take mapping as one example. You've got somebody who's responsible for um, kind of like basic health services, like tracking pregnant women, doing mm-hmm. immunization campaigns um, over a, a pretty big geographic area. Um, that person usually also has some kind of like domestic responsibilities related to um, taking care of animals because everybody's sure. out there. So goats and sheep, horses, yeah. camels, yaks. Um, also taking care of a family. It's, you know, it tends to be a very um, woman and, and mother heavy profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really complex to figure out who you got to see, who you've seen and, and, you know, maybe who's falling through the cracks. And so we saw um, a couple examples of uh, somebody who had figured out how to do essentially paper-based GIS um, in order to do that tracking. That's not something that was mandated by the ministry or by provincial health departments. What's GIS, by the way? Uh, So geographic information systems, essentially like doing data, overlaying data with maps, but doing it not like on a... um, on a phone or a tablet or a, at that time, right. PDA. Yeah. Uh, actually doing it with, um, with physical maps, but doing so in really effective ways. Um, and it was fascinating to learn from so many of these bug and emption to see also how those innovations um, scaled uh, across their system very organically. Um, I think that for me was, you know, at the level of a really like deep lesson that has, stuck with me that's that's probably one of the most important is the messaging or the solution building that you're trying to achieve that anyone's trying to achieve especially from a health perspective how important was it for the messages to be digestible um, from a cultural basis from a linguistic basis and you know it's the essence of being able to be health literate but it can't be driven by those who perhaps aren't again as you mentioned earlier empathic to what the community is going through. It's critically important in, in all of our work and wherever we are. And if we, you know, it's uh, for people that might listen to this into the far future, this is 2020 and we're, we're dealing with some of these challenges right now all around the world, not only here in the United States. Um, it goes so much deeper than language. Language is an important part of it, but it sure. really brought that, that culture. You know, the, the, um, the way that I... Um, figured out that I needed to approach my work there 
um, especially as a non-Mongolian, was a sort of litmus test for whether I was engaged in good work was whether I was taking back um, new insights and new learnings to the folks at the provincial health departments, mm -hmm. so, you know, health department director um, or folks at the, the national ministry of health. It's easy to be dismissive of a foreigner coming in as we might think here, who's going to come in and kind of understand something about the system that you don't already know. Right. Um, but actually, you know, sort of pushing myself, um, I'd say through different approaches, nothing magic about me, but maybe magic about the, the approach and process and mindsets of design mm. to learn, to learn different things and learn new things. If you can take those back to the people who are um, in charge of coordinating and managing a system. And if you make them pause and say, huh, like this is not what we knew, but it's believable. Um, right. Then you've hit on good stuff. And sometimes there was stuff that was not believable, even though it was really true. But, uh, well, I think, um, you know, from that perspective, uh, the idea of learning fast and failing fast so that you can learn fast is, um, probably, uh, you know, a major component of being able then to, um, bring back some of those aha moments to the people who are, um, you know, pushing the levers of either power or health. Um, my guest today is, um, just Paul Sandhu. After another quick break, we're going to talk a little bit more about technology. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, my guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, is Jaspal Sandhu. Um, Jaspal, uh, so much of your work focuses on health, but it also focuses on how technology interfaces with that. And, you know, there's such a health is such a relationship driven field. Um, so, how do we cultivate? meaningful human relationships, particularly in health, while living in an increasingly digital world? It's, uh, that's the million-dollar question, I guess. Right. million-dollar question, right? I now. hope you have an answer that, um, you know, will <laughs> solve it all, right? Either I've got the answer and I'm going to hold it back or <laughs> I, have, I don't have the answer. Um, I'll say that it's such a good question because it's – you know, you're asking it is, uh, is a proper acknowledgement that that's one of these really tough challenges that we've got to, we've got to sort out. I'm, uh, you know, it's hard sometimes these days, but, uh, but I am an optimist and, uh, and I think I have to be in, uh, in my line of work. Um, it's all set up to, to be making the world and systems and organizations and communities uh, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. uh, make things a little bit easier for them than, than things have been in the past. Um, and so I'm hopeful that with everything that's happening in the world right now, and especially it's happening here in the United States, that this is an opportunity for, um, for, uh, I won't just say innovation by itself, but innovation linked with, with equity. I mean, specific to this question about relationships in healthcare, I think something that has been, um, tried and trialed and has shown success, but to me hasn't really been and spread as wide as it needs to is this idea that it doesn't all have to be about the healthcare system interacting with people. Mm. There's a way to facilitate even more interactions, positive interactions uh, among people 
um, with one another. Um, you know, we've seen right. that over 20 years and even longer with um, folks with rare diseases, as one example. Um, like these groups that connect with each other naturally and almost organically? Yeah. And so is there a way to capture that? Um, not to sort of like own that and productize that. I think that's been done as well. But is there a way to take this idea of, um, for example, of peer groups and mm -hmm. use that as a way to, to build community, to build digital community? I mean, we're going to get out of um, some of this. We're going to get out of COVID eventually. And, um, and we'll be back out in, in the real face-to-face -face world in, in normal ways. It's going to take a while before we get there, but there's still going to be um, a really important role for, for digital to play, for people to connect over a distance, for people to connect um, when they're not face-to-face. -face. And, you know, sometimes those connections can be pretty um, toxic or destructive. So there's not... We're not guaranteed a uh, an upward positive progressive path. Um, so whoever's doing work in this space, um, we we need lots of people working on that problem. So an example that you just gave, and and with even some of the things that your group uh, is working on, what are you most excited about um, going forward? What are some of the things that um, you're uh, optimistic about when it comes to uh, the rest of this 2020 year and even beyond? Yeah. Um, well, one of them is this work that we've been uh, really deeply involved with for the last two and a half years with the Blue Shield of California Foundation called Reimagine Lab. Mm. The, um, this is all about family and domestic violence, which has, it has been underinvested in um, for a long time. And really all the money that's flowed into that field has gone to, um, to crisis, to shelters as one big example. Yeah. Um, and ensuring the safety of, of uh, women and men and people who don't identify as men or women and kids. Um, but it's been after the fact. And so the, the foundation was really interested in a couple of things at the same time. How do we bring a prevention lens to domestic violence? Mm -hmm. And is there a way to use design to spark innovation in looking at prevention? And so that's something that, um, you know, over the course of these two and a half years working with, I'll say this honestly, the most diverse group of people I've ever worked with, um, wow. you know, everybody from a police sergeant um, down in Southern California to a, um, a couple of folks who've been in this field for one person who's been in this field for 40 years mm -hmm. to a college student, to a college professor, to a lawyer. I mean, these were a group of 16 people that we, um, we recruited through a, a competitive process. We're essentially incubating innovations in domestic violence prevention. And this is the year where um, rubber hits the road, where they're actually on the ground building these things. Right. And so, um, you know, by the end of this year, I think we're going to actually see, see some data. Um, you know, some of it's looking at schools, some of it's looking at um, engaging black and uh, black men and boys in different communities in California. Um, there's something else around 
technology, as we were just talking about, looking at middle schoolers mm-hmm. uh, and the online conversations that they have. It's really a, a pretty eclectic mix of innovations, but I'm, I'm pretty excited to see, um, to see the results of some of this, uh, this incubation. Just Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. We hope you'll come back. Thanks for having me. Bye. Hi, this is Abhay Dandekar, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more info and for the latest on station programming and more. Ruckus Avenue Radio.